0: Welcome to Inside Scope, the American
1: Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic
0: each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all.
2: Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Ayanna Lewis. And I'm Dr. Erin Forster. We're your co-hosts for our podcast on increasing diversity in IBD trials. In this six part series, Dr. Lewis and I will speak with a variety of stakeholders about diversity in the clinical trials workforce and in clinical study participation.
0: It's also very special because Dr. Forster and I will be together on this episode.
2: It's great to be with you, Dr. Lewis. I know today's theme of changing how we talk about clinical research with patients is one that is important to both of us.
0: Absolutely. You shared with me previously that you've done some work directly on this topic through your own research funded by PCORI. Can you tell our audience a bit about that before we introduce our guest?
2: Certainly. Thanks for bringing that up. I'm privileged to be a part of the team led by Principal Investigator Julia Liu at Morehouse School of Medicine. Our project is entitled Engaging Inflammatory Bowel Disease, Patients of Color in Patient-Centered Outcomes Research." We're thrilled to see what our project leads to. It includes focus groups as well as a teamwork with our very own guests from today.
0: That's a perfect segue to an introduction of today's guest. Our guest is Melody Noreen Blackwell, the founder and president of Color of Crohn's and Chronic Illness, also known as COCHI, a nonprofit dedicated to health equity and BIPOC communities that are challenged with digestive diseases and chronic illnesses. Melody was diagnosed with Crohn's disease at the age of 36, 30 years after her symptoms began, and since has become an passionate health advocate for people of color who battle chronic illness.
2: Melody, thank you for joining us today. Could I ask you to tell us a little bit about your story and how you became a patient advocate?
1: First of all, I'm so incredibly honored and privileged to be here today, and I just want to thank the AGA, and I want to thank you, Dr. Forster, and you, Dr. Lewis, for having me. As you stated, Dr. Lewis, it took me about 30 years to actually be diagnosed with Crohn's disease, and when I finally got a diagnosis after just dealing with so many disconnected, from my perspective, symptoms that did not seem like they would be connected to quote-unquote, a stomach disease, I had to share it. And I remember my husband saying, why are you telling all of your business on social media? And I said, I don't know, but I feel like someone needs to hear this because coming from a space of entrepreneurship and just navigating all of these challenges and these hiccups with my health, I was sharing that with women, women that I was coaching, my own family members, being a multi-ethnic woman, you know, Indian from the Caribbean and then Black American. I have always seen women mainly and men shelve their health. And I said, I have to change this if I'm coaching women and they need to see this, like what is going on? and really understand that their real wealth is in their health. So I'm sharing and sharing and sharing. And unbeknownst to me, it just opened up like Pandora's box. And I started getting all these messages from people sharing and telling me that they were the first Black person to be diagnosed or the only Black person to be diagnosed with the disease. And I'm like, uh, no, my aunt is a Black person and she was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Why are people people even thinking or feeling Like their first in 2018. So I just looked around and I said, wow, I see why. Everything about this disease speaks to white community, unfortunately. It speaks to white patients. And there literally was limited even research that I could find on any community of color pertaining to this disease. So from sharing my story and then taking a look around at education, at marketing, at media, I said, there needs to be a space where black and brown people can actually just talk, can talk about challenges that they may be having with hair, with skin, with skin manifestations, with diet and family dynamics. And I said, let me just create a Facebook group. I had no idea that this is what would be birthed from that space. But I felt in my spirit so heavily that if you build it, they will come. And that is what happened. We built it and they came. Wonderful, wonderful.
0: I wanted to ask, what do you think it was that got in the way of you getting the diagnosis? You've mentioned it was 30 years. I know this is a little personal, but.
1: No, nothing is personal once you're putting your insides on the table for discussion, right? (laughs) I will say that if I'm really being honest with you, it was that I was black and brown. That I'm a multi ethnic woman because I've been having stomach aches, and my mother worked for the government. I've always had great health insurance. I lived in the Washington, DC metropolitan area. My mother's has a master's degree. She's educated. I'm educated. I don't think I'm shy by any means. And I, I have always been able to convey what was going on with me. So the only thing that it really pointed to was that I was a multi-ethnic woman and I was being disqualified from proper diagnosis. You know, and that's not something I would have known because that di- digestive diseases aren't A topic of discussion at the dinner table as far back as being five six years old I remember the knocks on the door I remember looking at bringing in my cabbage patch and my etch-a-sketch in the bathroom because the time spent in the bathroom got longer and longer so that was how I even knew that I had issues then because the knocks on the doors are you okay in there and then the stretch of time would, would get longer than I needed entertainment That was how I coped with as a kid. But at the age of 13, I started having consistent rectal bleeding. And I was told that I just had internal hemorrhoids, even after having a flex signal, even after telling the doctor that I had had consistency with stomach aches since I was five, six years old, I was still just told, okay, your daughter just has internal hemorrhoids. But that was a diagnosis after the doctor asked if I was sexually active. Wow.
2: You mentioned how your experience and word choice. Made such a big difference in getting to a diagnosis. How do you think that type of language can be used not only in the clinical encounters but also in talking to patients about the potential of clinical trials?
1: Words are always either an invitation or a siren to run. <laughs> it's an invitation or disqualification. It's one or the other. And one of the things that I believe healthcare as a whole has done is disqualified people that. They don't feel are qualified to understand the opportunity. That is where the challenge is with clinical research. It is an opportunity. It's not a last resort. You failed this, 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 this. I didn't fail it. It failed me. <laughs> so Let's start that. I didn't fail the medication. The medication has now failed me. Here's another opportunity for you. If we learn to present things to people as an opportunity, it's now an invitation for them to want to be intrigued or want to access the information instead of now fearing what is to come. Because that's what it feels like. Trials, especially with Black and brown communities, are spaces that feel imprisoning because more often than not, they are. So when we say things like clinical trial, clinical is disqualified, but all we hear is trial. What does that do? Does that sound like somebody? That does not sound like a party. That does not sound like something I want to go to, I want to attend, or I want to participate in. But then you have the providers not advancing the narrative of opportunity as well. Coupling those things and your doctor saying, well, it's a last resort, but I may have this for you. And then we hear of this inclusion criteria, which is really exclusion. All of these words are saying, you don't belong here. You're not welcome here. So how do we change the narrative, Mel? By doing what you're doing right now. Let's talk about it. Let's put it on the table and let's work to advance communities by being involved with them and and hearing them. If we never understand how people feel, we don't go back and say, why does this feel harmful to you? Or what have I done? What has my industry done to make you feel like you're not welcome or you don't deserve this opportunity to participate? Then we can't ever change it. Informed consent is not so informed. People don't even know about IRB, so they're still living off of old historical challenges that they're even informed about. A lot of people are informed about Henrietta Lacks and Tuskegee, but there are so many who aren't. They're just going off of what others have said to them, but there hasn't been a rebuttal on the side of healthcare to really inform patients who aren't looking for the information. You literally have to go looking for it to find it. But whenever there's anything negative, it walks right up to the person. Like, hey, you know this. I mean, gossip. Think about it. I know you remember as a kid playing telephone or something like that and the story keeps getting changed. Well, that's what's happening because We're not looking for things that we fear. We don't really want to be educated about it.
2: How has your leadership of Kochi allowed you to moderate those who have participated in research, those who haven't, and like helping Kochi be the platform to have those open discussions?
1: Kochi's approach is always to be people centered, person centered. While we focus on digestive diseases and we're growing in our focus, If it doesn't work for people, then it will never advance the disease, the equity in the disease, because we're people first before any of this ever happens to us. So we take that approach, even in how we communicate. We talk about mental health. I mean, we started initially, our very first program was called Together IBD. So we do things together. That's comfortable in Black and Brown communities. You know, their families, they're coming to the US together or they're coming alone and then supporting their families back home. You have to speak to that narrative because that dynamic is very much a part of who we are, culture, and community. So we take the approach of together. So we ask the questions of, Do you understand what a clinical research opportunity is? We don't use a lot of harmful terminology. Once we have found or determined that, hey, this is a red flag, why are they saying this? We kind of remove that from our lexicon. And if we put it back in there, it's with the lens of explaining why industry uses it. But then we go back to our default terminology, like clinical trial, and then we go back to clinical research opportunities, so that they understand that if they're searching for it, it's going to come up this way. But this is how we're approaching it for their comfort, safety, and trust. Why do you think
0: trust is such an important thing in terms of clinical trials? Can you tell me more about that and and how that informs your goals for coaching?
1: Interesting question, because why wouldn't it be important? My life is literally in your hands. Like my life is in your hands. So if I feel like data, if I feel like a metric, then that makes me disposable. I'm not human anymore. And this is one of the reasons why I have been advocating and sharing with my physician friends how important it is for patients to be a part of Grand Rounds. Because you're caring for people ultimately. And if you start caring for people when you leave medical school, then you're losing the point of what you're doing. You're losing the focus. So this goes back to why is trust important? Because my life is in your hand. And if I'm a parent who's navigating colon cancer and now I am being, place and a a research opportunity, I still have kids that I have to care for. I still have a spouse that needs me. I still have to show up for their events. So if you're giving me something and you're not giving me the best advice, I can't trust you to give me the best advice. I can't trust you to, to really let me know what my labs are saying. It's a space where I'm giving you the very best of me. Why shouldn't you be giving me the very best of you as my healthcare provider?
2: Absolutely, trust is so important, and definitely the foundation of uh, provider-patient relationships. Are there specific initiatives through coaching that are focused on clinical trials or helping patients balance their personal risks and benefits? There are some, you know, forums sure. online that are like only talk about this, only talk about this. How does coaching navigate those type of things?
1: Coaching so. I love that you mentioned PCORI because we're a partner in that grant as well. Whoop whoop go coachy. Yes. Uh, but we've also been in the space where we've had to share with people that doctors have said if this is the last resort for you, that we've had to share change mechanisms for their change of thought. So This may be the last resort for science because someone like you for medication that's actually able to be prescribed to you, but it's not the last resort for life and the disease because you participating in this allows you to advance science. So we talk through what IRB is. You know, now there are rules. So here are the rules that come with this study has to be regulated and it has to meet these standards and these guidances. Here's what it means to have informed consent. If this no longer feels like a space that you can manage, you can opt out of this because a lot of people don't understand what that means. Here are certain benefits that this study actually offers when it comes to financial support. We kind of break things down, but recognizing that there was such a grave need, we are launching our own program, which is called Count Me Included. And we go through things like and again, speaking to the positive, instead of asking people, why don't you participate in clinical research? We say, I would participate if. And so we have allowed our community to share what a barrier is that if broken, it would allow them to feel like they felt more comfortable with participating. And through that, we have physicians, scientists who respond to these Scenarios from our community. So they respond to the question saying, Hey, we've got an answer for that. Now, this is how this operates and this is how it moves. And because of that, they're now letting down their guard because physician scientists and leaders in the industry and our partners are responding to what they felt like was a challenge for them to even see this as viable. I think the first real Advancement is for our community who has been harmed by research, who has felt like it is only for someone who's failing to now say, oh, this is a viable opportunity and I am viable in the advancement that will ultimately change outcomes for my family. Because we know that IBD can be genetic. It could change people that I'm friends with. It can change outcomes for people that I'm just in community with. And that now gives them a badge of honor to say, I'm a part of how this has now moved. Because historically, there was none of me included in this method. Thank you so much for sharing that.
0: I wanted to ask, because you work so closely with patients, What are you hearing from patients in regards to clinical trials and from patients who've never participated before that you'd like to share with us?
1: To be honest again, you know what? I don't have to say to be honest, because one thing about me, I'm going to be honest. So (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the most recurring statements that we hear is that they're being disqualified. They've been on three or four biologics. That because they're not in a certain space of remission or where their disease is, they're again disqualified. So I really feel like that is probably for industry to reconsider these exclusion criteria because a lot of our community members, because they're not included in research, they are being unqualified in research because they're doing it and having to go through all of these therapeutics to get to any form of sustainability never been factored into in the actual drug development phase.
2: Would you say that the coaching community has felt any of the small industry changes in trials recently like for example head to head trials or patients that haven't been exposed to many medications or for those that have the slightly expanded criteria or that hasn't quite trickled down and we're just diluting ourselves thinking that industry is hearing things?
1: I do believe that industry is hearing and I do believe that some of the change is being discovered by community members because what we're, we've now been around three years. We turned three years old on April 14th, but we've been around as a Facebook group for almost five years. And initially clinical trial and research was a bad word. <laughs> No one wanted to talk about that. They didn't want to hear. I didn't get responses on posts. But in the last, I would say, eight months, I'm noticing people saying, I'm participating in this saliva study. I'm participating in this blood draw study. And they're talking about the studies that they're now open to participating in. And then people are asking questions. And I think because of that, it's triggered more people to want to understand or they're wanting to engage, or they're wanting to find out, how did you get into the study? Like, how did you find the information on this? Did someone reach out to you? But I think one of the most warm aspects of this is that their community is sharing this. I don't think that they're always inclined to do the research to finding or responding, because I see posts about studies all the time. Shout out to the Facebook algorithm or Instagram. I'm seeing them come up. And I'll share them and then people will ask us questions or they say, yeah, I saw that, but they didn't click to find out more information. They're only wanting to be informed about it because Kochi has shared it or one of their Kochi community members have shared it. And I think that speaks to the trust that they have for the actual community. If the community shares it, then that means it's viable and it's not something that's trying to steal my information or do something with my blood. You know, people think all kinds of things, especially if they still have family dynamics that are tied to some of these older studies or challenges that were unethical in medicine and healthcare. They still carry that along with them. So it's important even as researchers like yourself it's important to even do the tie-in and the buy-in with communities that are trusted amongst patients.
0: I wanted to ask you, we know that patients are a bit reluctant to enroll in placebo control trials, especially in IBD, where there are already a lot of therapies that are available. What are your thoughts on how to address some of the barriers to participation created by how we design our clinical trials? Now that's I think a that's,
1: question. Yeah. You know, you see my face over here. I'm like, I think that's really tough with placebo because this disease is a terror. You know, whether it's Crohn's or you see it ravages people's lives, people literally go from my, you know, I hear this a lot in cancer spaces, and I don't think that it's as magnified or the lens isn't really on how people can go from having a fully sustainable job and and fully functional life to now just being completely dysfunctional. And when you hear a word like placebo, it feels scary. You know, I was going to say something else, but it feels scary because I already have been down that road where I don't feel well. You know, you know some of my story, Doctor Lewis, where I had eight fistula and I had these drains in my colon, and I had rectovaginal fistula, and I had mouth ulcers and not eating and just it. My body was just going haywire. I would not personally sign up for a placebo study. I would participate in studies, but one that says placebo. I can't subject my family to that. Do you think it's ethical to be doing placebo-controlled trials for
0: patients with inflammatory bowel disease when we do have these other options? If I'm going to be who
1: I am, I'm going to tell you I don't think it's ethical because we're first called to do no harm and understanding the harm that this does to not just the person But their existence, their financial sustainability, their families, it goes far beyond getting the data. We shouldn't be doing that. I don't feel good about that. It's not something that I would be inclined to share. It's not even something that I could really speak to it being valuable, knowing what I went through for 30 years and having no answers for 30 years and then being subjected. I'm on my 16th medication and I'm finally feeling so much better. I'm not in remission yet. But I could not comfortably and with my own convictions tell someone that this would be an opportunity for them.
2: That's a real doozy. And hopefully as providers, we can try to balance what are perceived as risks and benefits of all the different types of trials and certainly emphasize those that are less placebo controlled or not placebo controlled, because you're absolutely right. It's the patients that are paying the price with their time and their lives and their families. But in terms of things that we have, like day-to-day opportunities to change, what do you think physicians or organizations like the AGA could do to help encourage clinical study participation in an informed, collaborative, warm way?
1: It's the discussions and the conversation. People have to be educated about what the opportunity is to advance science for themselves and for others. We put too much emphasis, again, I go back on the data and what this can do from a very high level delivery. And it's not being shared to people who don't have that level of health literacy. You know, it's just not shared. You have to be a scientist. I mean, let me tell you something. I get a lot of documents regarding studies and the development of these studies and how they're created and the moving parts. I feel like I'm going back to school every time I read one. I'm like, okay, let me understand, let me Google this. I love you, Google, shout out to Google. I'm like, let me figure out what is this? What are they saying? What, what are they talking about? So if I am a person who's in this space and I'm I'm navigating through the, through the water here, how much more challenging is this for a person who's never been subjected to this information or, or invited to this? We have to break it down again, back to the basics, invitation and opportunity. That's what this is. That's what a clinical research opportunity is. It's an invitation and an opportunity. So what does that look like for you patient? And when we start to develop patient engagement opportunities, then we can shift the paradigm because patient engagement speaks a different narrative than clinical trial participation. Absolutely.
2: I know you had described a warm kind of handoff and. I guess the million dollar ticket for pharma is who needs to come to the table to make their opportunity legitimate? Certainly, Kochi is a place to do that. And how could we responsibly recruit and inform and educate? Is it a faith based organization? Who is Kochi partnering with to make that a possibility?
1: So, we are connected to sororities and fraternities, we're connected to churches. We're connected to other smaller, like civic groups that are in communities. We're all over the place, actually. We just did our had our Hill Day advocacy for it's AFTCC, advocating for the Kochi culture. Everything is swaggy at Kochi. That's just how we do it over there. But we were speaking to legislators from 14 different states. So our reach is becoming more and more broad, which is great, you know, for national reach. And we're taking the stance of hosting, educating our ambassadors. So when we educate them, they now have their own community. And so they go back to. So when you say, like, who are we engaging or who are we connected to? We're connected to so many different realms in communities and families. But I think that it's bigger than just like, you know, Coach is one of the stakeholders at the table. It's also who's the stakeholder at the site that's attached to these communities? Who's that stakeholder? Who's at the site? Because you're bringing in these patients to this site and where's the compassion care? Where's the community connection? Where's the space of, hey, we're connecting you to this trial. I understand that you're a Black or Latinx patient. We have a great partnership with this organization. You may feel a little reluctant right now, but I'd love for you to talk with them at Together IBD. I'd love for you to get more connected to their Count Me Included program. I'd love for you to listen to their Coming in Hot podcast. Those are different different elements, coming in hot, health opinions and truth, where it's really to magnify the value and importance of clinical research. But we do it in layers, having conversations like Black men and colonoscopies, like what's the buy-in? Like, I mean, we keep it all the way real here because that's who I am, but I'm also a patient first. I'm also a person before that. So all of these methods and these tools are being built on people, patient, change. Real life, real people, real change. We say that all the time as one of our mantras. And you can't do that at these sites by making everything transactional. We are a transitional organization. And if we're with you, we're going through that transition to get you into an opportunity for betterment. And that includes sharing opportunities for advancement through research. Great. So
0: aside from me thinking about how we use language to discuss clinical research, what else do you think Physicians specifically and physician-serving organizations like the AGA do better to encourage clinical study and participation.
1: They need to show up. What do you mean by that? (laughs) Black and brown communities don't want people to come in to get their data or get their information and then roll out. Like, that does not work. Communities are getting smarter. They're getting stronger. And they know the value that they have. Even if they're underserved community, their value in being underserved, their value in being marginalized, there's value in being disenfranchised. So I don't have to share all of this information for you to prove this for your reports and your your studies, because what are you leaving me with? What are you leaving me with? And that means. What are the community events? What is community service? What does it really mean to be a person who serves the person or an organization or an or industry that serves the people? We have to go back to that because these communities are used to people coming in and leaving muffins and cakes and donuts and then rolling out like, hey, I'm giving you something sweet, but I really just left you with a cavity and I'm out. Because now <laughs> it's another problem because I purported to deliver something, but that really wasn't the delivery. Hmm. So how do we make this change? How do we
0: get these physicians and bigger organizations like the AGA
1: as a part of the community so that we can advance these research opportunities? They have to do it. Do the waterfall effect, from the leadership down to building out these groups. And, and we had that IBD clinical trial roundtable that was one. But having these kinds of discussions and then saying Can you, as a leader in this community, serve this space? How do you serve that space? And giving their partners the responsibility to serve certain spaces and then reporting it back in, saying, here's how we were able to move that. Here's how we were able to engage this many people. And we also planted some trees. And we also showed up to the cookout. And we also swagged and surfed with them. People hear me talk about swagging and surfing all the time. That's because that's my era. Like, you know, Electric Slide was a little bit before me, I guess. After swag and surf, we'll say the wobble or Cupid shuffle. I don't know, but swag and surf, it's synonymous with the cookout. So you have to do that. You have to show people that we're not here to take something from you, but we're actually giving something back to you so that we can see you progress and you can get out of this space of being marginalized. That's equity. Equity work is being vulnerable. And if we're really going to advance research and we're really going to advance diversity in clinical trials, then that means we have to go back to the heart of equity and that's vulnerability. And you can't build trust without being vulnerable.
2: Melody, you've given us some really good tools. I've learned that clinical trials are clinical research opportunities and we need to structure our discussions in the form of invitations are there any other key terms or verbiage that you want us to really put into the vernacular on a regular basis?
1: I think we need to stop saying that this is a last resort to patients okay? because that does more harm. If you or anyone says, hey, this is a last resort, that means there's nothing left for me. I've run out of time. But in all truthfulness, participation in clinical research extends our opportunity to have more time. So we have to start presenting research as a space of viability, of access, of mobilizing. You know, we have to change the whole dynamics of even from scientists, what that means. Is there anything else you want to add for us, Mel? I would say that we all need each other. So I want to do my part. You tell me what I can do to support what you all are doing as scientists. How can I support advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion?
0: That is so generous. Thank you. This has been a really wonderful discussion about how we change the game in terms of involving patients in clinical trials and really reaching communities that have been historically left out. So I'd like to take this time to thank our guest, Melody Noreen-Blackwell, and all of you for joining us today on today's episode. Be sure to check out the other episodes in our series on diversity in IBD trials.
2: This program is made possible by support from an educational grant from AbbVie Inc., Amgen, Bristol Myers Squibb Company, Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, and Takeda Pharmaceuticals USA, and a quality improvement grant from Pfizer, Inc.
0: Thanks for listening to Inside
1: Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA university at agau.gastro.org.